0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Real Talk, brought to you by About Faith. The podcast where brave courageous conversations are commonplace and anti-racism is a way of life. I'm your host, Cliff Folder. Let's get into this. Okay then, hi guys, Um, and welcome to another edition of Real Talk with About Face, and today I am joined again by our illustrious um, panel of Mark Waddington, Lorraine McLeod, and also Leanne Johnson. Um, This is the second part of our discussion on the wire monkey theory that I came up with um, in relation to the diasporas disconnect with England as the mother country. We talked in the last uh, recording on this subject about my theory that the reason that black people struggle to have a real connection and association and attachment to England is basically because rather like Harlow's Wire Monkey experiment, they have never, been fully embraced by the provision that is England. Um, for those of you who are unaware of the Harlow's recess monkey experiment, I implore you to look it up on, on uh, YouTube. But in a nutshell, an experiment was made with recess monkeys, where they were offered two uh, synthetic mothers, one that offered nurture through the fabric that was attached to it. And the other one that offered nothing because it was covered in nothing but wire. Very cold, very lifeless. And it only offered a um, a resource of, I believe it was water via a teat.
1: I think it was uh, milk, Cliff. I think it was it milk. Yeah, yeah, I think so.
0: Via, via the teat. Mm. Um, and when the monkey <laughs> was scared by loud noises and needing that comfort and reassurance, it would initially run to the uh, the monkey that had the fur on it. But as time went on, it actually found that because it was receiving no real comfort, it just had no choice but to accept the milk as just a way of sustaining some form of life. And it was a very, very sad experiment. Mm. Um, I've likened that to the reason that Black people do not attach to England. And we are here to discuss not only the implications of that but actually what can we do and how might we think about ways to encourage um the wire mother that is England to form a reasonable attachment to its black subjects and and citizens and equally how black people might be able to respond to um to England in a more uh, I don't know attachment worthy way so Guys, good to have you back. (laughs) That was all very heavy, wasn't it? Um, What do you think? Where are we starting with this? Don't all talk at once, guys. (laughs)
1: make start if that's all right but um, yeah, I guess um, being a psychologist we're sort of scientist practitioners and um, I was having a little look at the research earlier on today and um, just thinking about kind of successful interventions to tackle racism and there is very 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 a real dearth of literature in relation to it and I just think that's really interesting in itself.
0: I'd agree I think mm. that when I originally embarked upon um I'm thinking about formalising about face. Mm. One of the things I did was start researching, okay, well, what's out there? Who's Mm. researching this? And when you hit Google and start thinking about data um, Mm. for race relations, et cetera, what you quickly find is all the data available practically from America. Uh, Yeah. Um, And that in itself almost creates a sense of, well, the problem's over there. so so army Mm. americans isn't it who are you know they're they're the racists who are shooting people Mm. you know like it's hunting season and all sorts and over here well we don't have the gun problem we don't have that level of racism Mm. um but what we what we're starting to see here especially after you know the black lives matter movement george floyd Mm. etc is you don't have to you don't have to surface very deep in order to find real systemic racism
2: I think we have to ask the question, um, touching on research, I think it's a good question, why is there an absence? Mm -hmm. Um, And is there a barrier to that? Um, I mean, certainly within um, the field, of psychoanalytical psychotherapy i know that is being questioned right now mm. um because yeah i think we, we can look um across the pond to america and they have data which coming out of their ears yes. but if we're looking to uk that you know we have to acknowledge that there is a shortage is is that because people are not writing about it i don't think so i think maybe there is a barrier of that material being published
0: Hmm, Mm.
2: interesting
0: Interesting, but i'm not sure i agree okay (laughs) i think that in my opinion i've recently been been looking at figures published by education boards um you know the the government websites on statistics and all sorts and what i've found is that that is data there but if you are not already racially aware you won't know how to interpret the data so some of the data around education will tell you that of all the demographics in relation to English and math black children are rock bottom they're they're the lowest achievers in that area and I think it's like under 63 percent or something like that interestingly enough just above it um, is um, white boys within the same data stream. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at that thinking, okay, well, those stats are really, really close. Does this, in some way, shape, or form, kind of almost disprove the fact that racism exists? And it started making me think about this ridiculous, um, you know, race report that came out a couple of months ago that I, I can't even. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I struggled to even think about the flipping idiots who wrote that. But I was looking at that and their claims of, well, you know, no racism here in, in Britain. And I'm thinking, okay, so what do these stats tell us? If the, if the figures are that close, what does it really tell us? And then I suddenly thought, ah, right, now put your your life experience on, on head on here, Cliff. Stop just looking at the numbers and think about what it means in context. If black boys in particular are rock bottom in achieving educationally, especially in English and math, and just above them are, say, white boys, how do you explain the fact that all across England, in the boardrooms, they're littered with white males as opposed to black boys? And then what you have to consider is that the elephant in the room is privilege. So you have to understand how racism works in the real world to be able to to even consider what that data is telling you. There is data there. Unless you have some grounding within thinking about that, you wouldn't even know where to look for it.
3: Well, as the elephant in this room, Um, I'm the white man uh, with privilege.
0: (laughs) Mark, you're not an elephant.
3: Well, <laughs> interestingly enough, I've got somewhere on my desk here, I've got an elephant that um, somebody gave me because I talked <laughs> about elephants in rooms. And um, you see, I, th- I think it's actually a really helpful phrase because
1: mm. uh, it, it, the issue isn't about whether the data is there, it's about whether anybody's prepared to
3: look. And yeah. um, the white men that you are um, kind of referencing in, and I am one of those white men in some respects, you know, I, what I'm trying to do is something that's in the territory of looking. No. Um, now, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little example from what I've been doing this evening, actually. I run a group with about half a dozen people in it, and um, we've got um, one black female member who is the youngest member in the group. And... Um, she was talking in today's group about being the only black kid in college mm-hmm. and the experience of sitting in a room and um, if she did sit, say anything um, whether that
1: was going to be noticed by the class and whether it was noticed because she was
3: the only mm-hmm. black kid saying something or
1: whether it was
3: being noticed because there she was and she was having a view and um, I, I talked about her being um, I, I said to her, you know, in this group, you're, you're our little black girl, is what I said, and to, to, to find a way to talk about the position in the group, and we, we kind of made a bit, and then I said to her, what does it feel like to you when I say to you, you're our little black girl, and what I want to be mm-hmm. saying is, um, I embrace you, and your views are as important as everybody else's in this. combination of people um her answer is mark i don't experience that as an embrace from a white man who's empowering Mm -hmm. me i experience that as being little being black (laughs) and being a girl all three of those words put you in a position where you're in power and i'm disempowered and the very business of you white male uttering those three words um, puts me in my place and I've been put in my place all of my life and I don't like it and I don't like it when you say that. Wow.
0: And our achievement is that yep. we
3: built a relationship where actually she can afford to mm. and um, tell me mm-hmm. about the experience of what it's like when those words come out of mm. Yeah. What's tricky about it if I'm the person who's trying to help this group think is that That's what we need to talk about. Mm. And when I utter those words, um, I'm also creating the conditions where we can think about that stuff. And, you know, actually, one of the things I'm interested in, in terms of how we make sense of that as a group of four people now, is when I do that, am I doing the thing called being racist? Or am I doing the thing that means that actually we can unpack something about how power relations work? Um, and create the conditions where um, we can learn about what it's like being each other in a group. Um, And the answer isn't one or the other, it's both. Um, My sense is that whatever, if I said nothing about it, I'd be doing wrong, because I wasn't Mm -hmm. addressing this. If I say something about it, if you're that girl, actually, um, I have hurt her. And I don't think it's possible for me to of those words. Now, what we can do after that is the sense making that I report to you that is actually I've built a sufficient relationship that she can tell me what it's like, which is not very nice. Yeah. But it's it's there's something supremely uncomfortable about it, whoever you are. Mm-hmm. And what happens in this <sighs> is we don't talk about it. We mm-hmm. don't Bloody uncomfortable, and it would be quite easy for me, in a sort of confidential sort of way, not to have told you any of it. It'd be quite easy for me to sort of quietly be a white man
1: with privilege in the corner. (laughs) Um, And I am, I'm I'm in the bottom
3: corner of the screen, (laughs) so it's fascinating (laughs) how it's But actually, It seems to me that finding a way you can put that on the table and say, okay, people, what do you make of that? What should I have done? Have I done something that's empowering? Mm. Have I done something that's oppressive? How do you balance that out? Mm.
1: Um, And how do you talk about it in a way that means all
3: perspectives are wanted and welcome and could be uttered? Yeah.
1: It reminds me of that. I mean, I think there's such a fear of kind of political correctness, isn't there? Around speaking, around racism and what's the correct terminology, what's not. Um, and I think there just needs to be such an honest and open approach to it, doesn't it? Which you demonstrated, I think, didn't you, within that group. It feels like a very safe environment that she was able to articulate those views.
3: Well, I think you're right in one the Leanne, but I think mm. there's something about being a white bloke.
1: Mm. that's
3: Actually, re- I think it's easier for you to do that. You know, at least you've got being a woman on your side. <laughs> in this. You know, I I feel, um, you, know, mm. I, I, you know, I'm not interested in turning up and apologising for all the other people like me in this group. Like that would make any bloody difference. Mm. Yeah. That's not the issue. That I I think there's a dilemma, and I'm reporting on yep. my version of the dilemma. You know, mm. and. I I think I actually am an agent that hurts someone when I do that
0: Um, and the only you
3: know that it's you know being prepared to be cognizant of that tell me about what that felt like um, and there being sufficient of a relationship that someone takes the risk to push back and say look I really didn't like any of those words and you know it wasn't little it wasn't black it, you know it's, it was a bloody lot you know and as a white man I can turn up somewhere start speaking and I can interrupt pretty much anybody if I want to mm-hmm. um they'll they'll shut up and listen to me and you know I occupy a role in an organization where my job is to interrupt and get people <laughs> to think you know yeah um, it, it's quite handy being a white bloke actually it turns out quite well mm-hmm. for the most part yeah you know, and I, now my, I'm running an organization that does a decent job and the world's a better place because we're in it and all of that but yeah. actually part of what means I can do that is that when I o- open my mouth and interrupt people it works that girl I was talking to when she opens her mouth people just
0: carry on talking like nothing's happened most of the time and oh. go on I, I think that's really interesting. I've got so much that I want to say, but I, I actually would like to see what Leanne, uh, Leanne, what Lorraine says about that before I kind of let all of this come <laughs> um, Lorraine, right. Let, let me specifically ask you, as I, as, as I ask you to, to kind of comment on what Mark put on the table here, let me specifically ask you, what happened to you physio- phys- physiologically when Mark uttered the words, you are our little black girl?
2: Physiologically, yeah. I had a reaction. Yep, yeah. <laughs> I
0: thought you might. Go on. I,
2: I did have a reaction. Um, and and i was catapulted back into my own childhood and mm-hmm. and and i was screaming inside um yeah. so i'm very aware of what my reaction was to that little black girl mm-hmm. and because it's very um very potent very loaded statement and then my analytical head kind of just kicked in and I was just thinking about um, how to expose the elephant in the room it requires courage and requires from what you were saying Mark what unraveled to me was The courage on both parties to Mm -hmm. be able to allow themselves to be vulnerable. And because that is when something um, creative happened because it allowed um, the other um, young person Um, to voice that, one, she was not little. Two, she identified, yes, I'm black. And three, she identified, I'm female. So therefore, you know, these are the challenges for, mm, one, for many females walking into a room and being, one, having to... um, grapple with being, um, a woman, um, and having and owning that and, and wanting to be accepted as being equal. Um, but then you've got the other barrier, the other bits, mm-hmm. being being black, but then you have this other thing where there is this perception that you are little that you are inferior that you are below that you are not equal to me um but that's been around for years and years and years and years and years Mm -hmm. so the girl in me is screaming and the woman in me is screaming because I think, you know, and I think Liam would be able to, you know, these I felt are... a physiological
1: reaction <laughs> as
2: <are>, well, yeah. <laughs> these are
1: the... <laughs> this, mm.
2: It's just the challenges that we face on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour mm. basis.
0: I think this is really powerful stuff, and I think what's really important is that I... And I really thank you for also kind of labelling that to Lorraine, that what you, what Mark details in this interaction are two really brave people mm-hmm. saying, OK, this is where I'm at, this is what I'm thinking, and entering into dialogue that allows people to be really honest, really yeah. truthful, they tip their, their truth on the table. And I think one of the reasons why this is such a beautiful example, inevitably one of the reasons why Mark's on this call, is having known Mark for as long as I have, we have conversations like this all the time where it's just honest. It's like it, it's honest to the point where I've been driving home thinking, I wonder if I offended Mark there, or perhaps I should have offended Mark there. I don't know, but it's just really bloody honest. Anyway, before I even get into mine, I'm really interested in 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 the fact that Leanne, you mentioned that you had a physiological
1: connection mm.
0: to, to to that as well. So please tell me yours.
1: Um, I don't know because I hadn't thought about it being a gender thing actually, Lorraine. Until you just mentioned about you know the girl aspects of what Mark had said, but I think that I felt, I guess, empathy towards the the girl, uh, the young lady. Um, and I think it was that, oh, that doesn't feel very PC-like, I think was what <laughs> came into my, yeah, came into my kind of consciousness. So I think it was both of those elements. I think it was that and also the gender, you know, that that you're our little girl. It, yeah. Hmm.
0: I get it. I, hmm. I, I get it. And he, here's the thing. And me tipping my stuff on the table now is... I've been Mark saying the same thing and getting it and actually it's debatable as to whether Mark got it wrong at all. What Mark did was put the truth on the table. Yeah, truth itself doesn't necessarily have any right or wrong to it. It is just that perspective where I am laying my opinion prostrate on you know in front of everybody for everyone to pick at it. Um uh, uh, Go on the
2: right. No, I was just thinking because um, I was just thinking, um, I think it's Robin D'Angel who writes about white fragility. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And she was talking about, I don't know if she's, you've got this, this, the YouTube clips, and she was talking that she got into this conversation with um, a black friend.
0: Yeah.
2: And... Um, and in it kind of mirrored the convo- it kind of mirrored that interaction that Mark was talking yeah. about. But the, the beautifulness about what she was saying is that you will kind of find yourself in these conversations. Yeah. It's not that you kind of like purposely go out and say, "You little black girl." Mm. You know, mm. it's like that's 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 different from what Mark was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um. So, but she was saying that we will find ourselves in this interaction where, but where it requires us to stop and unpick it.
0: Mm. Yeah. I agree, and it's not for the faint at heart. Mm. It really, isn't. Because this requires people at all levels, regardless of where your relationship is at. And I think what's lovely in this story, in this instance, is that there was some relationship to anchor some of these feelings onto Mm -hmm. and some experience of each other. But you don't always get that. These are the sorts of things that you may find yourself in a fairly casual acquaintance suddenly you're in this conversation where these things are are front and centre. It may be two dads stood by the side of the football pitch watching their 10-year-old boys kick a football and they're chatting about what happened yesterday and you may find yourself in the throes of this sort Mm -hmm. of of conversation that just needs honesty. And this, this is the essence of what we are trying to do about faith. It's what we're trying to do. Um, as adults on this call, is really unpick this difficult moment and what do you do in it? I'll tell you about my physiological um, kind of reaction to, to that. And, guys, you know, for, for you listeners out there and, and all encompassed on this call, strap yourself in. It's going to get weird and very deep. Um, right. Immediately when Mark says, You're our little girl. I get catapulted back, not to to my inner child, Lorraine um, of you know me as a little boy, etc. I go back to slavery, so we're going away uh, back, and mm-hmm. the whole feeling of ownership, your ours. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing that resonated for me. So then, and this is something that that is a constant for any black person on the planet any black person on the planet, regardless of their level of awakeness or consciousness, this is something I truly believe is intrinsic. It's it's in them. It's sewn into their mainframe. It's hardwired to their DNA. The history that lives and breathes through every story you've ever been told about history is we were owned. (laughs) So when people even attempt to claim and invite and welcome and belong you know and, and give you a sense of belonging think about think about the implications of that this mm. is the the teacher welcoming children into the classroom you're you're my group i'm teaching you sorry i'm having trouble darn apple watches see so it doesn't agree with me right so um you can think about um you know, foster families where they're mm-hmm. trying to welcome a child perhaps of a different heritage into, into their bosom, if you like, and and say, hey, we're, we're your adult. We can think about um, key workers in residential homes mm-hmm. trying to just really emotionally, we talk about wrapping around support, wrapping ourselves around children and making sure they're claimed.
1: And
0: claim, I was just thinking claiming as oh, well. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That I, during all my time in residential, I mm. often told my adults, go out and claim your mm. child. Knock on the door in the morning, claim your child. Now, when you are a black person, somewhere in your DNA being claimed hurts. Oh, mm. God, it hurts. I, you listen to me, oh Lordy, it hurts. I'm I'm very much back there. This <laughs> is mm. very. It just resonates so deeply. So there's this real feeling, and then you get this sense that not only is there an elephant in the room, which Mark kind of said, I might be the elephant in the room as this uh, as the white male. There's another elephant in the room that's often not talked about, and that elephant is a large black elephant that says, I'm not sure I like you. Anyway, so there there we have, because there are two people in this dynamic. And in order for anyone to be, in order for this healing to begin, you have to acknowledge both sides of this. So there is pain and confusion in both corners of the room. This is where where the healing begins. This is where the magic happens. It's where all the pain happens. But in thinking about it, we have to think about historically, what these relationships tell us, what it means. So yes, Mark, you're quite right. Historically, there have been all sorts of negative attachments and and um, historical times and practices and all sorts that make those words leaving your lips, they come loaded with all sorts of history. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, you mentioned that actually, at least um, the likes of Leanne have the fact that she's um, female and therefore, you know, presumably not the historical threat and carrying the weight of that. Well, actually, if we look at history and we look at things like Rosewood in America, where hundreds of people were lynched and killed and homes burnt to the ground, based on a lie told by um, a white woman that she'd been raped. Mm. So actually, and you know, maybe it's a a personal um, thing of mine, but actually I've talked to lots and lots of black men who would say the same, the fear of being alone in the presence of a white woman it's real i i've been known and still do to this day sometimes if i'm walking on the street and there's a white woman on the same side of the the pavement me, as me i do a quick mm. check match just see if there's anybody uh, around who can vouch for the fact that i'm not about to sexually assault or accost this person I'm actually thinking ahead that, mm. oh, my gosh, what if this woman is scared to death of me because of all the things that, that that women are told about men and large black men too. So I'm thinking ahead, thinking she might not feel safe. I think i better cross the road. And then I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've just looked around. She might be thinking, I'm thinking, is there nobody around so I can rape this woman? Um, these are all the different mm. things that happen in an instant when we are in a dynamic where it's time to have a conversation like this.
2: I agree, Cliff. I do agree. Um, and if we are, you know, we we go even deeper. Oh. You know, and adding on to it, because coming back to Leanne and coming back to Mark's point, you know, that, you know, we, we do hear a lot about Black men. Mm. But there is this um, invisibility about the black woman. Yes. And so, and the black woman's experience of slavery is completely different to the black man's. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, you know, if we go, if we go back into history, you know, both Mm -hmm. experienced slavery. But their experiences if, of it were so different.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So therefore, if we're talking about intergeneration, we have to take into consideration that there is a line of in running through through for black men, but there's also a line running through for black women. Yes. And so we can't erase the gender. We can't. You can't ignore Mm. it. We've got to look at it in its um holistically. And we have to really think about um that there is the man's experience and there is the woman's experience.
0: So, because uh, I agree with that, I totally agree with that. And uh, we've often had conversations between me me and the wife about the impacts of those times on the different genders and psychologically, what does that do? And we talked about the submissiveness that um, would have had to have taken place to ensure survival for the black woman. Um and we also talk about how that fra- that fractures relationships between the black male and black woman, in as much as you're meant to be my protector, and you weren't. You were powerless to do so. Um, and then, if you look at all of that, then now you see the size of the difficulty that we now have in making sure that people feel welcomed. So where we started with this was, well, you know, the the diaspora in this country would find it really difficult to attach to this country because of the weight of the the, the elephants in the room. We're still there. So we've talked about how history plays its part in that. But now we have to think about, okay, so how maybe the question is, how do we build people's resilience in order to acknowledge that yes I am the elephant in the room, I am holding part of the valency about being the elephant in the room and I need to be really really strong and resilient to have this conversation in the same way that Mark did with the lady in that group. Well the the
3: thing about that is that quite a lot of relational work has been put in to create the conditions where mm. taking that risk yeah. um, is, you know, I, I was thinking about the dilemma of claiming children in children's homes and foster mm. placements and so on and so forth. And, you know, you and I have been professionally engaged in trying to create conditions where that claiming turns out well. Yeah. Um, and... know the thing that means it can turn out well isn't that within 30 seconds of meeting someone you claim them in an embracing sort of Mm -hmm. way um it's that there's there's a relational pathway that means that there's some kind of um evidence base to go back to data yeah actually in this relationship i can count on the possibility that um i can interrupt the person with power
0: I can get them Mm -hmm. to reflect on my experience of them and they're going to evidence that that makes a
3: difference yeah and um you know I I think one of the really one of the things I I was quite interested in when you were talking Lorraine was the, the the enterprise of psychotherapy as I understand it fundamentally is about looking after the little child inside each of us so my little girl discourse
2: is about you know my i'm I'm facilitating this Mm. group we
3: take care of each other and what i particularly want to take care of is your vulnerability and that's
0: predicated
3: Mm -hmm. on the little girl inside you yeah That actually i'm interested in that little girl because i want to take care of her not because I want to. Mm. Um, yeah, oppress. oh, yeah. I'm, I'm positioned so that, amongst other things, your experience of those words coming out of my mouth is an oppressive one, and you know, we've been kind of reporting on, on the physiological aspects mm. of that. And I get that completely, you know. Um, and so I suppose the bit for me is about whether this relational work is. For a start whether you can teach people how to do it, which I think you can. Mm. Um, whether, when it's taking place, you can notice it has and celebrate the fact that the world's getting to be a better place because some of it's happened. Um, and part of that is about the, the word courage. I think you know yeah, that actually you're prepared to have a go. Yeah. And then that behind that, there's sufficient systems to keep it safe and. Mm. No, my 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 process is even was oh shit should I have said that to these people what's going to happen next
0: you know, when all these people
3: listen to it have they just discovered what a total bastard I am or you know have I, you know you know and actually you know so there's a it you know we're we're configured in a really particular way mm, oh, there's two, men, yeah. two women two black people two white people you know that's what we've got here yeah so we've got most angles, I presume that's part of
0: Cliff's plan. Um <laughs> oh. we trying to basically form the Avengers. <laughs> the forever that's and it. all sorts of in <laughs> Earth, yeah. Oh. yeah.
3: But I suppose you know part of what I'm reporting on is the the risk-taking activity that's mine yeah. as much as it is anybody else's. And yeah. you know it's a different version from what you report in terms of walking down the street and thinking yeah what's that person in front of me thinking and you know i can think I, you know, i've had that experience too now i know that mm-hmm. you know and, and the second year you know juxtaposed with another person and there's a question about who's in power one way or another you know actually there's got to be you know how's how's this going to play out you know mm-hmm. and the you know, I suppose in terms of our discussion now, you know, one of the things that interests me is, okay, so what has happened between us that means it didn't feel like it was a completely stupid idea mm. <laughs> to say something whiskey, you know? Yeah. Um, and actually, that's that's about what we're kind of achieving
0: in the course of this discussion yeah.
3: now, isn't it?
0: Well, well I think that's... Uh, and I'd, I would like to come to, to Leanne on this in a second, but one of the reasons why... These podcasts are being created is because I really want the listener to almost be a fly on the wall and get to kind of listen to or see how you have a courageous conversation. Everything that we are putting on this on the table today, although you know we're we're doing it very astutely and we're we're all very um, articulate in how how we're we're you know telling our narrative. It's still us being really brave and just saying, hey, well. This is it. Mm. And have a conversation where we're talking about slavery and gender issues and and Mm. you know our our insecurities and our fears. But this guys is how you do it. This is it. So Mm. you know we're giving away gold dust here, um, guys. This is how it's done. If we can emulate the Uh. conversation we're having right now at all levels, Uh. then this is how we win. Yeah,
1: and all ages as well. I think Cliff. Yep. Um, you know I think it has to you know for me I just think we've got such Or I, you know I have and a lot of my friends have Mm -hmm. I've got such an ingrained fear of being racist you know without meaning to just through being kind of non-PC or using the incorrect terminology and I just think that you don't need to start in schools where we're having those really honest you know even toddlers you know when they see differences in the community actually just having an open conversation around that and not being fearful of it. Yeah. Um. You know, and I think kind of religious education at school as well is a really important place to start to have some of those debates and to note those differences and um, what makes us similar. I think it's really important at school school level.
0: I agree. We about Mm -hmm. face. Here's here's me giving another shameless plug. But about face, we've recently written a series of books um, that we'll be having kind of published. Um, and we've got some people in America working on it at the second. so um, mm. so we have a series of books and lesson planners for people to mm. be able to initiate brave conversations yeah. um, at school levels. Um, but you are you are quite right. This is about us starting people's journey as early mm. as
1: possible mm.
0: and how to have these brave conversations. Yeah. Hi, hi, on On a side note, that I'll try and tie in some way. Since we last, since we recorded the first podcast, I went on one of these ancestry um, websites. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say the full website because they're not paying me for <laughs> the adverts, so I'm not, <laughs> not going to tell you. But it was one of these DNA people, and I, I submitted my DNA in order to um, mm-hmm. find out. Okay, where am I from? Because we talked about uh, this slightly in the in the first podcast, and kind of this: how do you anchor yourself when you're you're so widely spread, We, you know, I, I want to know where I'm from. And it turns out, listen to this, guys. Right, I am, 50, you know what, let me grab my phone, because I can remember what's <laughs> the top of the end. Um, I know that I'm 57% Nigerian within my DNA. Oh. And I was over the moon, because now I know who to support when the World Cup's on. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that that was one thing. I'm just, uh, just, just loading it up um, and I'll be able to tell you. Right, here we go. 57% Nigerian, absolutely over the moon. So at some point, I'm going to have to go to Nigeria and kind of wander around villages looking for people who look like me. I am 22% Cameroon, Congo and Western Bantu people. Awesome. Now, the... Again, another hugely successful African team to support in in the World Cups. Now, the Bantu people also went on to um, be some of the very first people in in China. Um, And so on. So, you know, really rich history. Um, Then I have 15% uh, Benin and Togo. Now, Benin is on the... Uh, is it the west coast of Africa, and was also dubbed the Slave Coast because mm. it was, I mean, absolutely ravaged regards <laughs> to slavery and so on. And now I'm starting to think, okay, so these are some of the reasons why my father was so fair skinned is because actually this is this is how how those um, those cultures mixed, and now I'm starting to get a real picture of, of my history. I am 2% Ivory Coast and Ghanaian. Again, great teams to follow in the World Cup, which also (laughs) will probably explain my. Um, There's a theme here, yeah.
1: There's
0: a theme, isn't there? There really is. Unfortunately, what it means, I've got to buy loads of shirts and the whole family. Here's the one that, that. that amazed me. Well, there's European in there. I've got um, 1% Ireland, 1% Nor- Norway, Norwegian, and 1% England and Northern Europe. And I kind of thought, okay, well, you know, okay. Um, doesn't mean I'm going to be, be supporting them in the World Cup, but, you know, hey, whatever. But this is the one that really, really shocked me. So I'm also 1% um, Croatian and... Cho- um, Mbutu people. Now, I did some research. The Mbutu <laughs> people are also known as the pygmy tribe. Now, the pygmies are famed for being all of like three foot tall. Oh,
2: that's right. nowhere in your, your genetics.
0: <laughs> Apparently. I'm,
2: I'm, <laughs> <That's>
1: <laughs> only one percent,
0: though. <laughs> it's only one percent. Imagine if they weren't in my DNA, I'd have been nine foot tall. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it's, but we are talking about how, how these historical influences allow us to attach to um, to our environment. So, given the fact that I have so much DNA from such far-flung you know, places as Nigeria and Cameroon and so on, it is highly unlikely that I would naturally feel this affinity to the land that I find myself in, especially if I'm not met with open arms. And the only way we can create these open arms is to teach people from a very young age how to have open arms and and risk being hurt in order to, to develop closeness. So the last question before we kind of draw this to a close, and I've got a thing, we're going to end up doing a part three of this because this is awesome. But my question is, within all of our lovely textbooks, I mean, um, you know, we've we've read about Klein and Baldy and Barbara and Drysdale and all of these wonderful people. Where are these people talking about the very different nuances in the attachment for black people and black children. To my knowledge, they don't.
2: No. So
0: what we're we going to do about that, then, guys? Come on, we are some of the keenest minds in the sector. Um, we work with some of the, you know, the the most, um, yeah, the, the 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 most vulnerable demographics. What do we do? come Monday morning to go and start in our own small little world going to make an impact because you're quite right, all our professionals are coming through reading from the same textbooks that ignore this fact. Oh, the silence, oh, oh. wow, oh, that's,
2: oh.
0: <laughs> How do we do
2: guys? I mean, I know that within the training schools now, they are challenging that. So it's they're bringing color into, um, you know, they're not making it. It's not just white. They are. They're bringing in the color into the reading material into. So they but there has been an absence, and we have to acknowledge that there has been and do something about that um I guess we just have to start writing, yep, producing more and putting the material out there. I think you're
0: right. I think we need something that is tangible that people can refer to. But come Monday morning, I think that's a conversation that people need to start talking about with practitioners, those who are heading up their training um, developments within the organisations respectively, and just asking the question. Because whilst we need to be recording, we need to be writing History will tell us that that's a really difficult thing to gather the momentum in. I think actually, you know, getting people to listen to this podcast might be might be a really good thing. Um, us at About Face, once again, are forming some wonderful um, kind of ties and partnerships with universities. And we have some stuff uh, that we're working on currently that means that those who are coming into the social healthcare sector will have to have a grounding within the education that we provide as an organisation in order to be able to really kind of have this rhetoric going forward within their practice. So there are universities that are taking up the the courses that we offer at About Face to be able to change it within social healthcare for social workers, Mm -hmm. for educators for those um, you know studying to be nurses, doctors, etc, but what we need to do as a group, not only us on this call but the listeners and other people, is we've now got to really start insisting at a level of education within our organizations okay, where is your where is your anti-racism element? Where is it? Because if it isn't there, mm-hmm. I think that now we have kind of peeled back the layers of this. We should be uncomfortable working with people who don't know this. Mm. Well, there's a part of it
3: that's, um, you see, I, th- I think there's, there's you know, what research generates, there's training and so on. Mm-hmm. For me, they are stuff that feeds what you might describe as culture, as, yeah. as this does. No, part of the outcome of this enterprise, of us all trying to talk to each other about this stuff, is that we work out. How to string together a sentence that captures mm.
1: these four perspectives that we share, and we're we're actually working
3: out a way of talking about this stuff as we do this. And
0: yeah, my,
3: one of my other kind of background activities, I'm doing discourse analysis on how complex networks make sense of difficult situations, and mm-hmm. um, my big focus is on the words that people use and how they choose yeah. the words they do yeah. and you know, a really yeah. simple version of when a meeting's going well and you probably find it with this one the two words that happen the most are think and yeah so I'd say I think and you'd go yeah, yeah. and what's happened is <laughs> straightforwardly is you know something that Mark wonders about is put out there with this word think which you pay attention to that and if it got some legs Somebody will say, Yeah, and actually, you know, if we analyze this, there probably be quite a lot of thinks and years there, but in between there is then this business where, you know, how, for instance, uh, the business of claiming is as complicated as we've articulated mm-hmm. it is, that mm-hmm. there become ways to talk about that that you can be sure footed about rather than panic that you're going to get it wrong. Um, And you know, I do think that the the, sort of the whole world of PC Mm. gets you to a point where you can't understand something because you can't bloody talk. Mm. And when you talk, you say stupid things, and you need someone who's on the other side of the screen to say, Hang on a minute, that's a bit stupid. And you go, Oh, god, yes, it was. Let's have another go. And you know, I, I just quit. I remember taking my daughter swimming, and she was about two years old. And I live in a very white town in Leicestershire. We went to the swimming pool there's a black guy in the swimming pool. Dad, she said, look at that golden man. That was the first thing she said to me. Um, now, maybe I'd done some fantastic anti-racist parenting that I didn't notice. I, I suspect not. <laughs> um, it'd be great if I could claim responsibility for that, but you know what I did do is think, bloody hell, okay, well that's not a bad place to start out from, and you no, that's my little girl, my little white girl, that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it does seem to me that there's some stuff on the side of hope that doesn't yep. get noticed because what goes wrong is so noisy and it's easier to spot stuff that goes wrong mm-hmm. than stuff that goes right. Yep. Um,
2: but I think it's a cultural enterprise. You know, in my organisation, I think I am doing something about that because I think about how to talk about this all the bloody
1: time, Mm.
3: and I make relationships include people going, Christ's sake, Mark, why did you say it like that? Tell me more, you know. And actually, that's the the courage bit. But it's it's also about a network of relationships where you're wanted and welcome, and if you take a risk, you're not going to get beaten up if you're an idiot, you know. Yeah. that's tricky at school because most kids at school feel like they're going to get beaten up with their because by the teachers. You know, the, the power yeah, relations yeah. at schools um, engender, and I started out as a teacher, so I can't feel really equipped to worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> there's another way that is about, you know, when somebody says, look at that golden man,
0: there's something to celebrate. Mm. I, I, I remember being in the swimming bath and I'm very much hoping it wasn't you and your little girl, but I, re- <laughs> I remember a, 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 a with, it was actually, it definitely wasn't you and your little girl because it was a little boy and the little boy spun around and saw me and kind of looked at me from toe all the way to the top of my head and turned around to his dad and says, look at that round man. And I remember being like, <laughs> I don't wanted to kick a kid into a swimming pool quite so much. I was absolutely fuming. <laughs> well, what's and I think you highlight that within your story about your, <laughs> your your daughter with this golden man is there's there's something wonderfully innocent about children's narratives mm. that we all excuse for them getting wrong. And this is the basis uh, of what The Brave Conversation is. Yeah. Now, the fact of the matter is, out of the mouth of babes, look at that golden man. It's actually just a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. I've to fill my life with wonderful stories like that. And when we think about I mean, we could get into all the fact that, you know, she saw him as golden and, and the fact that gold means so much to us. And, you know, when we talk about, mm-hmm. you know, colours and worth and all, so that's wonderful had your daughter have been 17 when she said that, and we'd all be like, oh, my God. We've really got to think and allow ourselves to get it wrong a bit. And those who have been wrong to understand that there is a point to being wrong so that actually there's something now to talk about. But in order to educate people to, to pick the sense out of nonsense and to... To be okay with being around people who are struggling to get it right as much as you, is kind of goes back to what Leanne said. We got to start this early. Mm. We got to start it really, really early. Get in as early as possible, and start having these brave conversations over cornflakes with kids who were trying mm. to fish out the toy. I don't, I don't think they have toys in, in cornflakes anymore. It's, somebody's afraid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> don't do that. You
0: see, that's a world I am, That's a world. When I was a kid, there were choke hazards in every box. <laughs> but now, you know, again, people are so PC. No one wants to see kids choking over cornflakes anymore. <laughs> so, if we can cut each other just a little bit of slack, and start early enough to to, mm. to educate people that you know what, people are going to get this stuff wrong, and it's okay to talk about it. And we can we can be okay at the end of this. I think that's a great mantra for us to be going into our everyday lives thinking about. Um and we've got to kind of spread the love and spread that as a message. So it's wonderful that we in our own organizations, in our own way of doing this, what we now have to do is just make sure we don't miss a beat and encourage other people to to, to do so in, in, in their forms and walks of life too. Um Guys we, we've we've done an hour and 10 minutes, I think that tomorrow morning we're all going to get up and go we should have talked a bit more about this. It may turn into a part three, it <laughs> may rumble into a part 10 by the time we've we exhausted <laughs> this, but for this moment I'm going to call time on it and simply say thank you so much for joining us on what is becoming an increasingly wonderful space to be in. Um, and this is Cliff Holder with Lorraine McLeod, Leanne Johnson and Mark Waddington talking on Real Talk by About Face. Good night
1: and bless you all.
0: Well, that's all for another week from About Face with Real Talk. See you next week.